And you'll find your place in verse 26. We'll read to the end of the chapter. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Heavenly Father, we pray this evening as we come to your word that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. You would give us understanding, give us wisdom, make us faithful, Lord, and teach us what it means to abide in Christ. Teach us how we might live in this present age as we look forward to the age to come, living in the reality of that age, even as it's even as we feel it here in this present age. Lord, teach us how to live in, uh, in the Spirit. Teach us how to walk in a Christ-like manner. Teach us how to um, honor you by making a practice of righteousness. Teach us, O oh Lord, how to follow your Son. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two ages this present age and the age to come. And we live in a period where these ages overlap. One New Testament scholar says that it's impossible to understand the New Testament unless we understand this truth, that we live in the over overlap of the ages. The old age is a passing age. We've already encountered it in 1st John. John has spoken of it in various ways. He's spoken, about, spoken of it in the language of darkness. In 1st John 2 verse 8 for instance we read these words, at the same time it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. In that verse John speaks about both ages, one in terms of darkness and one in terms of light. Again, in verse 17, he speaks of this present age as one that is characterized by the things of this world and the desires of this world. And so we read in 1 John 2:17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And once more in that verse, John considers both ages, the passing age that is characterized by the world and the desires of the world, and the age that is to come, which is already present in our lives, that age that is characterized by eternal life, by abiding forever. And last week, as we looked at 1 John 2, 18 through 25, we saw one particular mark of this present age in the coming of many antichrists. John reminded us, saying, You have heard that Antichrist is coming. And so now I tell you, so now many Antichrists have come. And so he speaks about this present age 
as an age that is characterized by those who are opposed to God and to His people, those who stand against Christ, and they demonstrate their opposition in a particular way, namely, in that they deny the Father and they deny the Son. This is the way that John speaks of these individuals. They are marked by denials and by deceit. And yet in the midst of this, John, as we've seen and will continue to see, speaks of that eternal age to which we ultimately belong. But he speaks of it as a reality that is both future and present. There is a light that already shines, he said in verse 8. And there is a life that lasts forever, as we saw in verse 17. And we see again in verse 25 when he writes, And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. And these are characteristics that belong to the age to come, light and life. Ultimately, just as this present age is marked by a coming one, that is, the Antichrist who is to come, this future age, this eternal age, is also marked by one who is to come. And he has come. and He is with us. And he will come again. Now there is a similarity here and that both ages are marked by one who is to come, and yet there is a marked difference. You see, we, we can see this in the language of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 8, and the way that John there speaks about Christ. Christ declares, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The one who is and who was, and who is to come. And that's very different than the Antichrist who we encounter in Revelation 17, verse 8, with this description. He's described here as a beast, but notice what John says about the nature of this beast in terms of his existence. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit. John uses language that mirrors the description of Christ, but with that striking difference. He is one who was, who is not, and who is about to rise or is about to come. And so there is a similarity, but there is a difference. And that difference ultimately is seen in the eternal nature of the Christ, eternal the eternal nature of our Lord, who was and who is and who is to come. And His age is one that will endure forever just as He Himself endures forever. This passing age, this present age, is one that must come to an end, just as its ruler is one who also must come to an end. And so as we live in this period where there is an overlap of the ages, we experience the realities of both ages at once. On the one hand, we experience opposition, as we saw last week. We experience hostility. We experience persecution from those who belong to this present age. They don't know us, John said. They don't recognize us because they did not recognize Christ. And yet, we live in the reality of the age to come. We don't live in every way thinking about the realities of this present age, but rather we live in the reality of the age to come because we already experience the benefits of that age. And tonight as we look at 1 John 
2, 26 to the end of this chapter, we're going to see some of those benefits, some of those realities that have come to us in our life in these overlapping ages. But John is going to also challenge us. He's going to issue us a command. He's going to instruct us, that is, how we ought to live in these overlapping ages. What are we to do? How, do, how are we to, uh, to persevere in this period of turmoil, in this period of conflict? And the answer is simple. We abide in Christ. We abide in Christ. That is the way in which we endure in this period of overlapping ages. What does it mean to abide? We could also translate this word as remain. To abide is to remain. You could say, abide in this place. Stay here is the idea. And yet the way that John uses this language is, uh, creates a, a broad category. He doesn't always use it in the same way. But he uses it under a, a, a large and broad heading, if you will. That is, he can apply this idea of abiding in different ways at different times in his letter. And yet it all refers to this broader idea that we're going to see as we look at some of the ways in which he uses the word abide. For example, in chapter 2, verse 10, we read this instruction. He says, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Now we know that Christ is the one who is light and in whom is light. And John uses this language metaphorically, but we can imagine this idea of someone remaining under a street light on a, on a dark street in an alley where there's not much light, but he stays in the lighted area. He stays on the lighted path. And that's a helpful metaphor to think about what it's like to stay in the light, to abide in the light. There is a a reality in our life where we keep ourselves in a particular place, so to say. Namely, we continue to walk in the light we have from Christ. You could put this in another uh, sense by saying we hold fast to our confession. We hold fast to that which we've received. We hold fast to the gospel which we've believed. So in one sense, that's what it means to abide. And yet there's also a temporal sense, that is a, a sense within time where John uses this language in verse 17. He says about the one, who, the one who knows God. He says in, the, uh, in verse 17, whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so you, you see here there's a different context to this language of abiding. This is a person who remains across time, not just in one place and space, whether it's physical or metaphorical, but throughout all eternity. He abides forever. And yet, John again can use this language in a relational sense. In verse 25, for instance, he says this. Not in verse 25. I'm sorry. In verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. The one who abides in Christ 
abides in a relationship with the Father and with the Son. That he remains in that relationship of humble love and trust. In that relationship as a child of God. And so we see that John uses this language of abiding in another sense then. In that relational sense. And this is not just about fellowship. It is indeed about fellowship. But it's about much more. It's, it's a richer idea. It's about a mutual indwelling. John doesn't just speak about being with the Father and with the Son. But he speaks about being in them. And having God within us. The Father and the Son are in us. And we are in them. There is a mutual indwelling, a relationship whereby we are in one another. And this is, this is experienced particularly through the Spirit in us. That God has sent His Spirit to indwell us is what we see here in verse 26 and following. He speaks about the Spirit as an anointing. As John goes and says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. He follows that up by saying, but the anointing that you have received from him abides in you. and You have no need that anyone should teach you. If you turn back with me to John's Gospel in chapter 14 of John's Gospel, you'll see that this comes from the teaching of Christ. This comes from the, the things that Jesus taught his disciples in the upper room before he went to the cross. And there in John 14, Jesus spoke about the promise of the Holy Spirit in verse 15, in these words. He said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Here Jesus is speaking about the coming of the Holy Spirit when God will send forth his Spirit to dwell within the believer to empower the believer, to enable him to persevere in faith. That's the idea of having God abiding in us. We see it in the Spirit within us. And again, John can say, uh, uh, Jesus can say in this upper room discourse, as we look down to verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Here what you see then is an idea that John returns to in this first letter. That the Spirit, because He dwells in us, He brings to our remembrance the things that Jesus taught. And so John can say in verse 27, The anointing that you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And so we see that this idea of abiding in Christ is a rich idea. It's one that, it, that, that also um, that, that is a mutual idea. That we are commanded to abide in Christ, but we are also promised that he abides in us through the Spirit who abides in us. And we also are told by John that his word abides in us in verse 14 and verse 24 of 1 John chapter 2. And so it's not just uh, 
it's not just a, a single idea, that, that, uh, but, it, but it's a rich idea that is applied in many different ways. And yet here it seems that John is speaking primarily about this relational uh, sense of abiding, that we are to abide in Christ in this relational way by continuing steadfastly, holding fast our confession, continuing in love, and practicing righteousness in our lives. And that righteousness is one that is characterized by, as we've seen in 1 John, confession and repentance, by love for others, and by endurance and joy. This is the way in which we abide. This is the practical demonstration, if you will, of that life of abiding in Christ. And all of that can be spoken of as abiding in Christ because we know that those things are not things that we produce by our own effort and our own strength, but those are things that God works in us as we abide in Christ. Again, we're reminded of what Jesus taught His disciples in the upper room in John chapter 15, just one chapter over. There He used this image of a, of a vine and a branch. In John 15, He said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so you see what Jesus is teaching as he uses this image of a branch and, uh, that's, that's in the vine. That's what he's speaking about when he's calling his disciples to abide in him. Because if they're to have that fruitfulness that characterizes the one who abides in Christ, it's necessary for them to remain in him to remain in that relationship of trust and faith and dependence whereby He works in them to produce the fruit of righteousness. Just, just like any branch. If you take that branch off the tree, if you take that branch out of the vine, it can produce no fruit. Only when it's connected to the root that nourishes it, then can it be fruitful. This is the picture that John is working with here as he speaks about abiding in Christ and commands us to abide in Him. He's drawing it from what Jesus taught him in the upper room there in John 14 and John 15 and following passages. And in this way, he shows us what it means to abide in Christ and to have Him abiding in us. But he also gives us reasons why we should abide in Christ, why we should continue in this relationship in this period of time. And the first reason that He gives us is because the Holy Spirit has taught us to do this. Notice what He says there in, verse, in, the, in the second half of verse 27. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. This command to abide in Christ, He presents as the, the very thing that the Holy Spirit has taught God's people. It's the very thing that the Holy Spirit teaches to us, that we must remain in Christ. And we know that it is true. We know that it is a right message, that it is a true message, because the anointing that is the Spirit that God has given us is the Spirit of truth. This is a very practical instruction in John's context as he writes to this church. 
because, as we saw at the beginning of verse 26, he's writing about those who are trying to deceive them. As we think about those deceivers in the coming weeks, and we see John uh, further elaborate on their various deceptions, we're going to see that they're trying to lead the people away from trusting in Christ. They're proclaiming doctrines about Christ that are new and novel and lies. We don't know exactly what they're teaching, but we can surmise, we can, we can guess with some accuracy, I'm sure, as to what they were teaching based on what John says. <coughs> Excuse me. What he says about the one who is in Christ. It's a person who holds fast his confession, who continues to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's not the one who denies the Son, who denies the Father by denying the Son. This is the, this is the person who, um, who holds fast to the, the, the things that he's received from the beginning, the things that the apostles received and passed down. And so we can surmise that there are, um, there are false teachers who have arisen in this context who are teaching otherwise, who are saying something like, well, Jesus was not really the Christ, or Jesus is not really God, or Jesus did not really come in the flesh. Whatever their denials... They're trying to lead these people astray. And John is saying, the thing that, the, that, that you were taught from the beginning is a thing that the Spirit testifies about, the thing that the Spirit shows you to be true. Hold fast to that, just as He has taught you. He's taught you to abide in Christ as you've received Him. Don't stop. Keep doing it. And this, again, accords exactly with what Jesus taught his disciples in the upper room. For he told them that the helper who he would send, that the spirit of truth that he would send, is one who would bring to their mind, bring to their remembrance the things that Christ spoke. And so he does, not just for them, but also for us. And so because he testifies to us that we ought to abide in Christ, let us do so. Now later, John will teach us to test the spirits. In John, 1 John chapter 4, he talks about how to discern whether a spirit is from God. And he says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. This kind of testing is not the same kind of testing that we heard about this morning when we read, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, but rather this is a way of, of evaluating the consistency of the message. One thing that we know for sure is the Father and the Son and the Spirit do not speak in contradictory ways. There's one message, one will, one mind of God. And so when the Spirit speaks, He speaks the things that Christ spoke. He speaks the things that accord with the Father, Father's will. And so if the message you're hearing, the message you're receiving, is something that is contradictory to what Christ has said and what God has said, then you know that it is not from the Spirit of God, but it is from another. This is what John is telling his, uh, his readers here. He's telling us that we ought to test 
the Spirit in this way. Those who deny Christ, whether they deny that He came in the flesh or they deny that He is God or deny Him in some other way, they're not from God. This is not the testimony of the Spirit that we have been given. And so, let us abide in Christ because the Spirit teaches us to do this very thing. And the second reason that John gives us of why we should abide in Christ is because Christ will return. Here again, we come back to this idea with which I began, that we live in the overlap of the ages. In truth, we haven't really left it because the giving of the Spirit by God to His people is a signature mark of the age to come. It's a, very, it's, it's, a, it's a significant aspect in our life, you might say, or it, you could say it's the crucial aspect in our life that typifies the life that is to come. It is the sign that we already live in the reality of, the res- of a resurrected life, the fact that God has given us the Spirit. And so we, we see that there, but we also see that Christ is coming again and that there is a future reality to His kingdom. There is a present reality, but there is a future reality to it as well. And we are called in the meantime to continue to abide in Him. Thus, John issues this command once more at the beginning of verse 28. And now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. Here he points us to the coming of Christ and he says the same thing in two different ways. That we want to have confidence at His coming. And on the same token, we don't want to shrink back in shame at His coming. When He comes again, He will judge. He will come in judgment. When He came in the incarnation, He came to save. When He comes again, He will come to judge. And those who are abiding in Him, they will be delivered from that judgment. They will be saved. Those who do not abide in Him, those who reject Him, those who turn from Him, who don't hold fast to the confession, face a certain judgment. In view of that reality, John tells us, abide in Him. I can illustrate this by um, the idea of what we'd call in the Navy a working port visit. Sometimes when you pull into a port, you pull in for a little bit of rest and relaxation. You might spend a few days there, and the hope is you'll get off the ship for two of those three days and be able to see the town, maybe go and spend some time on the beach or go and do some shopping or whatever it is that you like to do in that port visit. But sometimes it's just a working port visit. You're there to reprovision the ship. You're there to, uh, to onload stores and offload things and, and to refuel the ship, perhaps. And in those working port visits, you could imagine some crew members might say, you know, I think I'm going to sneak off this place, get away from this ship, and go and see the town. No one will ever notice. No No one will ever know that I'm gone. And then that person gets wrapped up in all the festivities and all the enjoyment of, of, the, uh, of the place where the ship is uh, docked. And then the time comes for the captain to say, cast off all lines and let's get underway and the ship throws over the lines and they start to move out to sea and these crew members didn't make it back and they're left behind. There is a time where that ship is in the port but that ship doesn't belong to the port. That's what it's like for us. 
We are in this time where these ages overlap. But we don't belong to this age. We have a new life that belongs to the age to come. A life that is marked by the Spirit's work in our lives. A life that is marked by trust and faith in Christ. A life that is marked by fellowship with the triune God. And there's always that ever-present temptation to say, I'm going to leave that life behind because this one seems quite good. This seems like a great, great place to have a good time. We abandon that faith. We, we walk away and we say, you know what, maybe I'll come back later on. But when that ship sets out to sea, it's too late. When Christ returns, it's too late. And so John's message to us is remain, abide in Christ, hold fast your confession, don't fall away, don't be deceived by those who would lead you astray. Abide in Christ. Now in this final verse, John takes up an idea that's a bit difficult. The sentence is easy to understand on its own if you know that he is righteous you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. But as one commentator observes, though the sentence is simple, the logic of the larger argument is hard to understand. It seems as if John suddenly shifts his attention to something different. It's helpful to realize that John has a particular style that uh, may be different than what we would be used to in our own context. We're used to kind of a linear way of thinking. If you were to sit down and you were going to write an essay to somebody, you would maybe set out your main thesis and then you would establish various points that support your thesis and your argument would proceed in a very linear way. But if you could imagine the way that John approaches these things, it's as if he has a table set out before him and he has all of these different objects on that table, these objects which in this illustration represent various ideas. And at one point, he'll take up one of those objects and he'll look at it and consider it and then put it down. And then take up another object and look at it and consider it. And then at some points, he'll take up two of the objects and look at them together and then set them down. And it has this very cyclical way of, uh, of proceeding through the letter whereby he comes back again and again to an idea that he's uh, spoken about before. And the challenge for us is to see how the things relate here he says, if you know that he is righteous, and we're reminded of what he said at the very beginning of chapter 2 when he referred to Jesus Christ as the one who is righteous. There in verse 1, Jesus Christ the righteous. And in the way he's spoken about God throughout this letter as one who is righteous. He says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. But here it's helpful to remind ourselves that John has already connected the idea of practicing righteousness to abiding in Christ. Look at verse 6 in chapter 2. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And again, look at verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. And then remember what I read from John 15 about the branch and the vine. The branch that abides in the vine is the one that is fruitful. And so you see that this kind of righteous living, the one who makes a practice of righteousness, 
who is a person who is born of God, is born again, that has that new life that is wrought by the Spirit in him, that is a person who abides in Christ. So if John has given us two reasons why we ought to abide in Christ, he concludes then with this line that shows how we will abide in Christ until he comes again, whether for us individually or at the, on the day when he returns and comes for us altogether. We abide in him by living a life where we make a practice of righteousness. This doesn't mean that we are perfect, we've said again and again and must say again and again. It doesn't mean that we practice righteousness perfectly without fail. It means that the pattern of our life is modeled after Him. That it, is, that it is marked specifically by those things that we've already seen. By confession and repentance from sin. By faith in the One who is the propitiation for our sins and who is our advocate before the Father. It's marked by love for one another and love for God. These are the things that should characterize our life together, even if they characterize it imperfectly. We are those who make a practice of righteousness. We are not those who put it all aside and say we have no need for any of that. That seems to be the way in which the deceivers live their lives. But that's not the way that those who are born of, of God live their lives. For those who are born of Him abide in Christ and therefore they walk in the way in which He walked by making a practice of righteousness in their lives. And so as we draw all of this together in conclusion, we're challenged by these words to reframe our values and our beliefs as we live in this period of overlap. Our value system must be realigned by the reality that this world is passing away. How would you value a new car if you knew that no matter where you parked it, that night an asteroid would fall, fall on it and destroy it? You would not be willing to put down $30,000 for that new car because it doesn't have that value because it won't be around in the morning. How should we value this world and the things of this world as we read in, earlier in 1 John 2? in light of the fact that this world and the desires of the world are passing away. We shouldn't value it very much at all. How would you value a promotion at work or an accomplishment if you knew that it could not last? But how might you use those things differently in light of the reality that they are passing away? You'd use it, as Jesus teaches us in that parable from Luke, you'd use it to make friends for yourself, that is, friends who will receive you into eternal dwelling places. You'd use it in a way that is fruitful for the kingdom of heaven. It's fruitful in eternity, not merely for this present age. And so we reframe our value system in light of the passing nature of this present age. But we also reframe our aims and our desires, our ambitions and our values according to the reality of the age to come. We are born again. We have the Spirit abiding in us. And thus, we don't live our lives with despair when we face difficult circumstances. For we are equipped with all that we need to be people who practice righteousness, to be people who endure through 
difficulties and trials and tribulations and persecutions, for we already have those things. We have the Spirit of God in us. We, ha we have been born again. We have Christ with us even to the end of the age. We have all that we need to abide in Christ. So we don't despair at difficulties. We don't worry about the things that come our way. We don't become consumed with these kinds of thoughts. But rather, we put our faith and we put our trust in Lord Jesus Christ, who will come. And yet, though He will come, who is already with us, and has already sent His Spirit to dwell within us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, O oh Lord, that You would help us to live in light of these truths, in light of these realities. I pray that You would communicate to us these truths, that You would make us to know the reality of Your presence in our lives, and that You would teach us indeed that uh, the truth that Christ is in us, that we are in Him. We know, O oh Lord, that we have gracious and glorious promises that You've made to us in the Gospel. And yet we also know that by Your grace, though these promises will be fulfilled and brought to their completion in the day of Christ Jesus when He returns, nevertheless, we know that we already experience these benefits in this present age. Make us to trust all the more in light of these realities. Make us to live faithfully, enduring through all kinds of difficulties. Make us, O oh Lord, to abide in Christ as He abides in us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.